You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to those who uh, were able to brave the rain. Um, I know that we'll be expecting more, but we want to get underway. Uh, My name is Nancy Lindborg. I'm the president of the United States Institute of Peace, and I'm just delighted to welcome everybody here this morning. Um, For those who are watching online, you can follow us uh, on social media with at USIP. Um, And for everyone, especially since we have innovation and technology in the program, uh, you can um, tweet using hashtag rule of law tech. Um, and I encourage everyone to check out uh, the new USIP podcast at usip.org backslash podcast. Uh, that will include today's event um, as well as other programs that uh, look at similar topics. Um, for those of you who haven't joined us before, USIP was founded by Congress in 1984, dedicated to uh, the proposition that peace is very possible, um, that's, that it is essential for our national and international security, and that it is very possible. And part of what we do is work on the possible, on taking good ideas, research, innovation, um, and translate that into policy and into practice by working with partners around the world um, to find out how to make peace possible. Um, And one of the things that I think all of us see over and over again is that in countries that are convulsed by conflict or stuck in those spin cycles of conflict, what they are all uniformly missing is a state-society compact that assures the citizens that they can rely on security, that they have access to justice, that there is a rule of law that enables them to have confidence in their government. That's really the core. Every conflict country is different, but they almost all uniformly share that characteristic. And that we, therefore, established what is called the IMPROL project more than a decade ago. Um, And I hope many of you are either watching or with us here today. It's now an online global community made up of more than 3,000 rule of law practitioners from 120 different countries and 400 organizations. And this is an online community working together to understand how better uh, to improve rule of law in conflict-affected environments. So we continue to work on these issues um, as well through projects with Peace Tech Labs um, and with our global campus online platform, which will host a rule of law course later this year. Um, So all of that is to say that we are delighted to be co-hosting this event today um, with JustTrack, the Justice Sector Training Research and Coordination Program. And um, we're delighted to partner with JustTrack. We share a similar dedication to promoting rule of law uh, and to looking at how to reform Uh, rule of law in conflict-affected countries around the world. We have adjoining missions, and we are natural partners. Um, This is the second year of the partnership. Uh, Last year, we convened to look at some of the very tough issues that practitioners face in the field. How do you deal with the lack of political will? 
What are the incentives for rule of law reform? And how do you deal with often very limited resources? So I'm happy to be reconvening today with our partners uh, to look this time with a view to the future. How, uh, especially at a time where you have a lot of focus on the data breaches, on privacy concerns, we've just had the, the Facebook hearings, um, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that technology is also an important tool for good, and how do we leverage it to accomplish the rule of law goals that we all share. Um, all of these topics, uh, innovations in law enforcement and how social media is changing the relationships between citizens and governments are essential for understanding how we can use technology to build legitimate, inclusive, and accountable institutions that build justice and security. Um, these are the heartbeat issues of our work. So before I introduce our co-host for today, I just want to give a quick shout out to Senator Lindsey Graham. Um, Justrak is uh, uh, housed at his alma mater, uh, University of South Carolina. He was instrumental in launching the Rule of Law Collaborative that oversees this. Um, and importantly, he's been an, a, a champion and a voice on the Hill for these kinds of issues. Uh, so a shout out to Senator Graham. And with that, I'm delighted to invite uh, our co-host, Hamid Khan. Uh, oh, you're going first. I'm so sorry. With that, I'm even, well, let me just also say, we're, I'm, I'm uh, very happy to be working today with Hamid Khan, who is, uh, uh, an alum of USIP and the director of JustRack, and himself uh, has an illustrious uh, legal and academic career. Um, and in, so let me then pivot and uh, welcome Harry Bader to the stage, who's the acting director of the Innovation Lab at USAID, um, and uh, doing excellent work there, moving technology and innovation into the development field and particularly looking at many of these issues. Harry, it's wonderful to have you here. Please welcome Harry to the podium. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Nancy and Hamid for convening us today on uh, this important topic. One of the things I'm going to be focusing on today is the role of USCID and working in the technology sector to help combat corruption. Corruption weakens institutions and undermines stability. It has a corrosive impact on the rule of law and erodes citizen confidence in the ability of their government to deliver essential services. The emerging digital economy gives us a new opportunity to use tools to thwart corruption. But as Nancy mentioned, technology can be a double-edged sword. But what we're working on at USAID is to build a global digital infrastructure that is affordable and accessible, along with mobile services, to provide unprecedented opportunities for more transparent and efficient systems that can build the role of civil society, that can foster democracy, capital economy, and the ability for individuals of freedom of expression. The four key things that USAID is working on within the Global Development Lab is on digital payments, distributed ledger technology, artificial intelligence, and digital identity systems. At USAID, we believe that supporting the development of an inclusive digital economy is essential 
with our partners, both in the field and other donors, for the progress of humanity to realize our aspirations around the globe. Digital financial services offer us the opportunity to build a transparent environment that can save millions of dollars in the process. Every year, governments around the world pay out billions of dollars in cash. These payments include, among other things, government salaries and pensions. Payments in cash are incredibly difficult to trace. They're insecure, they're insufficient, and they're susceptible to leakage from corruption. When governments make the switch to digital payments, they realize huge efficiencies. In the Philippines, for example, USAID has helped two different provinces digitize their payrolls, reducing disbursement costs to the government itself. In the case of the Philippines, those who have adopted digital payments for the government workers have reduced administrative costs by 90%. In Afghanistan, when we help digitize payments of police, without, a, without any greater expenditure on the part of the government, the police saw their salaries miraculously increase by 40%. That is because we removed the vectors of corruption that were in the cash pipeline. So not only do you increase government efficiency, you also increase reliability and accountability. And since digital transactions are inherently more traceable than cash, there's also the ability to improve our, uh, our, our processes for tracking illicit financial flows. This helps not only the United States government, but like-minded partners to combat cartel activity, money laundering, and terrorist financing. Distributed ledger technologies, as most people know as blockchain, is also helping, we believe. And we're working very closely at USAID within the lab to find applications of blockchain to international development. We believe that by increasing the number of individuals and organizations with access to these records, that these technologies can enable greater visibility and can therefore reveal attempts to delete or tamper with data. We believe that more audible records that may present themselves through this new technology is another opportunity to fight corruption. Likewise, artificial intelligence can help financial institutions more efficiently identify suspicious transactions and instances of money laundering. Again, artificial intelligence is one of the priorities of the US Global Development Lab to see how can we use artificial intelligence in the development sector. But again, it's a double-edged sword because it's only as good as the people who design them. And if you can use artificial intelligence to build an inclusive digital economy, you can also use artificial intelligence to build an exclusive or oppressive digital economy. Through our RegTech for Regulators Accelerator, USAID is supporting countries such as, again, the Philippines to develop prototype chatbots that can help in this process and thus improve accountability. And then there's digital ID systems. Again, something that can be used for good or for bad. Comprehensive, well-regulated digital identity systems provide the opportunity for citizens to have access to formal services like business registration and land titling. These systems can help create a basis of trust and inclusion that strengthens democracy and free markets. In Liberia, USAID has supported the development of a biometric ID system to aid the Ministry of Education in its personnel management. The system exposed widespread corruption, leading to the elimination of scores and scores of ghost workers. In so doing, not only did it save the government of Liberia money, but also broke the bonds of corrosive corruption in this case to help improve the ministry's responsiveness to the public. 
As we said, digital technology is revolutionizing development around the world. We don't have to look any further than here. For example, it was just mentioned, the Peace Tech Accelerator's work to scale innovations focused on accountability, transparency, and anti-corruption to fight conflict. And this has enormous potential. But the potential for good is equal to the potential for evil. And again, as we build a global digital economy, we have to talk about the enabling environment and how these things are applied. We want the digital global economy and infrastructure to build the capacity of civil society. We want it to expand the opportunity for economic capitalism. We want to foster democracy. We want to create a platform for truly free individual expression. But the digital future that I've just described is not preordained. There are other models that are being championed, championed by China, Russia, and Iran. That is why the U.S. stands firm with its allies and like-minded partners to build a global digital infrastructure that sets us free, free from corruption, free from want, free from ignorance, free from pestilence, and most importantly, free from tyranny. So I welcome today's meetings and uh, roundtables to, to discuss how can we use technology to expand the most important thing, and that is the ability to free the individual from these vicissitudes of violence, conflict, corruption, poverty, and ignorance. Thank you very much, and I look forward to hearing more about the work that's going on. Good morning. My name is Hamid Khan. I am the Deputy Director of the Rule of Law Collaborative at the University of South Carolina. I am pleased and very heartwarmed by the fact that everyone is here. This event is being live streamed as well and recorded for posterity, so please don't feel that the lack of presence in the seats necessarily negates the, the impact of this message. As part of our ongoing commitment with the U.S. Department of State in a cooperative agreement known as Just Track, we have convened a group which we hope today will bring together both policymakers, scholars, uh, tech individuals, and savvy individuals who care about the development issues across the world. The Rule of Law Collaborative, based at the University of South Carolina, is collaborative in its nature that it brings forth both a variety of experts, academics, in a university setting, and stands unique among institutions across the United States. Just Track seeks a similar goal, which is to bring about the intercoordination of our federal government, our counterparts in academia, and various disparate actors to bring together both knowledge and understanding on the challenges and issues facing the justice sector community. In addition to the event today, the Just Track uh, network, which has already been established over the past four years, combines a variety of different trainings in a number of different fields in comparative uh, legal systems as well as introductory uh, understanding. We also provide resources for research on challenges and issues that, that occur across the board. And then there are events like today, a symposium aimed at bringing about scholars, government, private and public actors on the issues that challenge us. And today, this marks the third in our innovation series. Innovation and rule of law and innovation in general have always been challenges that we face, but today it's also uniquely combined with the issues and challenges of technology. And as has already been mentioned by both Nancy and Harry, this can be a double-edged sword. 
one in which we confront both the potential opportunity to reach out to more disparate populations in more far-flung areas of the world than ever before. And as today's event will uh, be broken down, there are three primary pillars that we will focus on. The first being on law enforcement and the advantages and perhaps some of the pitfalls that occur within the law enforcement community and the use of technology. The second, we'll look at engagement, whether it's by through our phones, social media, or the like, we will bring together a host of actors to look at how social media and mobile apps have, have moved the level playing field to an even greater degree, involving greater populations, greater interactivity, and their involvement. And then finally, the last panel today will focus in on e-government. This idea that government should be at the forefront and their engagement with populations has become a new and lasting challenge for both governments that seek to enhance their ability to reach their populations, as well as those who are on the recipient end. And all the while, we are still confronted by this, the perennial challenges that confront rule of law, access to justice, fairness, equity, and the host of other resources uh, that are related to the rule of law challenge. In addition, because of our, uh, our gracious host at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and which I am proud to call myself an alum, uh, we also have the opportunity to actually directly engage with some of the tech-savvy individuals in a variety of different development uh, spheres. And as you look towards your agenda, please take note of the fact that after this first panel discussion, we invite everyone that in addition to uh, commiserating over coffee, to engage with some of those who have graciously donated their time uh, to talk about their work and to give examples of the application, including the work here hosted in coordination with the U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, the Peace Tech Accelerator. In addition, and unusual to D.C., we're also offering lunch. And in that regard and in that spirit, we also want to uh, offer the opportunity to hear from the remarks of a former U.S. ambassador who has been both wedded into the issues uh, perennial to the challenge of law enforcement, but is also cognizant of the, uh, of the challenges of technology. So today we will have a very full day. We will have multiple opportunities, and we invite you to both participate in our panel discussions, which will not only engage the, engage the various speakers who we've invited from various agencies, public and private sector audiences, but for you, the audience, to join in on the discussion, to ask the relevant questions that need to be asked, and to push forward the substance of knowledge. Again, thank you to the U.S. Institute of Peace for serving as gracious hosts, and we welcome you. Thank you. Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? okay? I'm Lindsay Freeman. I'm a lawyer and research fellow at, on the Human Rights and Technology Program at the Human Rights Center at UC Berkeley School of Law. I'm also a member of the Technology Advisory Board of the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, 
where I used to work. Um, in line with today's symposium theme on innovations and new technologies in rule of law programming, this panel is focused on enforcement. Innovations in, enforce, in law enforcement, and in particular, the obstacles um, and opportunities uh, of new technologies in the fields of digital investigative analysis and forensic science. We have three very impressive experts here on, um, who will address the emerging approaches in law enforcement in forensic science and digital evidence. So we have first Joe Verani is a digital investigative analyst in the cybercrime lab of the Department of Justice. He provides digital forensic support to federal prosecutors on cases involving computer crimes, intellectual property crimes, and other crimes that involve digital evidence. Before joining the cybercrime lab, Joe worked in IT security at the DOJ. We also have Mark Grants, who is assistant to the special agent in charge of the US Secret Service's Washington field office. He's been with the US Secret Service for 18 years and has 24 years in law enforcement. He's overseen high-level international investigations, managed intrusion detection and video surveillance systems at the White House and other protected facilities, and is presently the supervisor of the Washington Metro Electronic Crime Task Force. Finally, we have Mark Mogul, who serves as the Deputy Assistant Director for Special Operations of the Department of Justice's International Criminal Investigative Training Assistance Program. He's coordinated forensic development programs in Europe, Central Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, which support investigations related to corruption, human rights abuses, cyber crimes, sexual assaults, trafficking, and other transnational crimes. Um, prior to um, working with the Department of Justice. He served for 14 years with the Pennsylvania State Bureau of Forensic Science. And so before we get started, each one will present and then we'll have some questions, uh, mixing in some follow-ups that I have along with audience questions. I just wanna highlight a few themes um, that arose when I spoke to each um, of the panelists beforehand. So one is the dramatic increase in the volume of digital information and evidence. There's been a proliferation of digital devices and they're collecting more information than ever about our daily activities. This volume of information obviously presents great opportunities for law enforcement and investigations, but it also has huge challenges of how you separate the signal from the noise and um, effectively get to the information you need for your cases. The second is the pace of change of new technologies changing. Um, the rapid transformation of tools and for government in particular, keeping up with every new tool that comes out and having the regular training so that they're trained on new technology and keeping pace. Um, the third with the rise in concerns of privacy and security, new technologies are, have increasingly effective encryption technology, encryption is now a default for many devices, and a lot of new technologies make that digital material increasingly ephemeral. So there's concerns about how you identify what is important, how you collect it, and preserve it. Um, the fourth is working um, in cooperation between agencies, 
which is a challenge, as well as cooperating internationally. The field of cyberspace and the international you know, is a borderless by its nature. And so there's challenges with working with international law enforcement, in addition with private companies. Obviously, the field of technology has raised many interesting issues out of the role private tech companies play, what their responsibility is, and how they interact with law enforcement. And finally, there's an increased expectation among judges, lawyers, and juries um, of uh, how scientific um, you can, or how you can kind of scientifically prove crimes using digital evidence and explaining when it's an, more of an art versus a science and um, how conclusive you can be, particularly with attribution, which is difficult. So with that, I'll let the panelists speak, and we're going to start with Mr. Varani. All right. Is this the uh, clicker here? All right. So um, my name is Joe Varani. I, I work <clears throat> in a uh, digital forensics lab in uh, the Department of Justice. It is the, oh, there we go. It is the cybercrime lab. Uh, and the Cybercrime Lab is part of CSIPS, which is the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section of the Department of Justice. And so CSIPS is a group of about 30 or 40 attorneys, uh, and they have different focuses, either on a computer crime team or an intellectual property team. They are focused on policy. Some uh, deal with litigation. Uh, they work on international uh, coordination and training events. Uh, they are the contact people for the 24 by 7 network. So if there is an emergency uh, request that comes in from uh, the international request, then they are the ones to respond to it. And then also as sort of a self-contained group in CSIPS is the Cybercrime Lab. So the Cybercrime Lab um, is a group of non-attorneys uh, that has a, a different focus than a lot of forensic labs out there in that we are dedicated to the needs of the prosecutor. And so normally when you think about an investigation and, a, and a, a trial case all the way from start to finish, you have a lot of work that goes into it up front uh, from the investigating agency. You know, they do a lot of uh, research and investigation and they get ready, uh, they get their search warrant and they're able to seize and image devices. Um, and they have a lot of these cases going on. And so if something gets all the way to trial, you know, they may have to shift their focus to uh, uh, another case. Uh, that is that is uh, current that, that they're currently working on, uh, but the attorneys, uh, the prosecutors, may need more uh, assistance getting ready for trial, and that's where we try to step in. We've also developed our uh, lab around a team-based approach to forensics, so we have groups of three or four that work on our cases, and so we can hopefully turn around these cases faster um, by uh, splitting up the work. Uh, among a few people who can uh, work together with their areas of expertise. So one of the issues that we kind of have to combat is this idea that we're ever really completely done with digital forensics. Um, there's not really a full forensics where you say, okay, there's, we found everything that we can find, that's it. There's always more that we can do. There's always more that someone else, another analyst, could find if they had more time to really dig into things. 
So what are some challenges that we see when collecting digital evidence these days? First, uh, as was mentioned, there are more devices out there. Uh, earlier this spring, we got a case into our lab that uh, all of the equipment that was seized from, from this guy's home filled an entire one of our offices. And so that's way too much for us to look at. Uh, and so it, it's, it's also not really critical for the entire case that we look at every single piece of equipment. You know, the, the dusty computer that was found under the bed, right? That is a super low priority. But the question then comes is, okay, we have all of this equipment to look at. What do we look at first? What's the most important? And that's where communication with investigators uh, is really important um, because they have, you know, they, they knew uh, this was the computer that was actually running that was on the guy's desk. So you may want to start here. Uh, the second thing that we have to deal with is the increasing storage capacities of devices. This is a micro SD card um, that is small enough that it fits on your fingertip. Back in 2005, the, uh, you could get a 128 megabyte uh, micro SD card. 11 years later, 256 gigabytes on something that fits on your fingertip. Uh, and so that's a 2,000 times increase in the capacity of something that's so small. And as a comparison, uh, what we say is uh, that uh, one gigabyte of data printed out on paper would be a stack of paper about 1,000 feet tall. So you have something uh, this small that is 256 stacks of 1,000 feet paper. That's a lot of data to look through. Another issue that we have with increasing concern these days is encryption. Uh, and if a device is really well encrypted, you know, you have iPhones these days that come encrypted by default. You have um, uh, the, the newer types of uh, tablets, like from Microsoft, if you have a Surface tablet, there's a good chance that it comes with BitLocker encryption enabled by default. So the users may not have even known that or set it up but it comes that way. And so with good encryption products, it becomes very difficult to bypass that encryption. So if we're dealing with we don't have any information, here's an encrypted hard drive, it makes our jobs much more difficult, uh, and that can take you know, months or years uh, for it to actually uh, complete. And encryption is being used not only in the devices, but in communication as well. So people are using uh, messaging products, uh, and a, a lot of them are turning on their encryption. So that uh, if, you, if you try to intercept the communication, well, that's encrypted too. Uh, and so that makes uh, it much more difficult to get access to uh, the communications. Encryption also changes the way that we uh, respond on the scene. So if we think that somebody might be using encryption on their computers, we don't want to shut the computer down right away because that just uh, reverts it back to being fully encrypted and fully protected. If the computer is up and running, we want to, uh, the, the first responder is to take some different approaches to image RAM uh, because that is where the encryption key would likely be stored in a running computer. We want to check for encryption to see uh, are there encrypted drives that are mounted uh, in, in an unprotected state on this system. And then we can act appropriately and create a forensic uh, image while the, the system is up and running. So we get all of those decrypted files while the system is running. 
Another thing that we have to deal with is the accessibility of the storage as well. So it used to be that everyone had a desktop computer and you could pull off the lid and you could pull out the hard drive and connect it to a write block, which is what one of these two devices are. Um, and that write block gets connected to our forensic workstation and it's great. It was really easy to copy all the data off of the, uh, off, off of the hard drives. But these days, devices are not made to be opened up by people, especially very easily. So you've got phones, you've got tablets, you've got uh, computers, especially some Macs these days that are really difficult to get open. You need special tools, there's glue everywhere, there's special screws, and so it's not just as easy as opening it up and popping out the storage medium and then uh, imaging things. And so, especially with cell phones, what we need to do is that cell phone needs to be running, it needs to be on, which is much different than our normal process of having a computer turned off and nothing's changing. But the cell phone has to be on so that the computer uh, talks to it and it basically says, dump all your data out for me. And so that means that our cell phone forensic tools have to be aware of lots of the different cell phone makes and models and features and security features uh, that might be trying to protect data there. And there's a lot of different types of cell phones out there. The other thing that we need to keep thinking about is that we're finding all of the potential sources of evidence. And specifically, I'm thinking of syncing and syncing to the cloud. So we grab a computer, but the data might not actually be on the computer, or the computer or the cell phone might be encrypted, uh, and so we need to go somewhere else to get access to that data. So that might be uh, in cloud storage somewhere, or the computer might be syncing to the phone, the phone might be syncing to the computer. So if we can't access the data on one, it might be on another device as well. So that's a little bit about the collection of the data. Now in terms of the analysis that we do uh, back in the lab, one of the, the challenges that we have is really understanding the request that is being made by the prosecutors or uh, the investigators that want us to work on their cases. And it's important because it drives uh, the rest of what we do. Um, and so sometimes it's trying to figure out what do what, do, what does the customer actually need? You know, they may ask us, can you find this IP address on this computer? We can and we may find it, but does that really help them? Our, our bigger question is, what do you need to prove? Because then we can, we, we have the expertise and knowledge of knowing where to look to find things that happened on the computer. So if, you, if the request is, we want to find out if someone remotely logged into this computer, then I know that I can look in several different places that may include uh, those IP addresses, but it may include other things that uh, the prosecutor and the investigation team haven't really thought of. And so then once we actually understand the request, we want to make sure that we fulfill the request. There's millions of files on a computer, uh, and so we can't just start looking around at things. We have to uh, make a logical approach and make sure that at the end of the day, we can say, the request was met. We have an answer for you in a clear language that they can understand. And we don't want to just find evil on a computer. We want some user attribution. We want to be able to say, this is how this 
uh, information got onto this computer, we might be even able to conclude who was using the computer or where the computer was at the time. This background information is very helpful uh, to help understand you know, what was going on at the computer on the, at the time and how it relates to the rest of the case. Another one of the challenges we have is keeping up with technology as things change. There are about three million apps on the iOS App Store uh, and uh, the Google Play Store. And so the forensic tools that we have don't know about all three million of those apps. So it requires us to play with the technology, to test things out, to try and uh, uh, test and learn and verify. Um, and if we need to, be able to make our own tools to interpret some of the data. And so the final point that I'll uh, leave with is that I should say specifically digital forensics is sort of a combination of science and art. So we have to have the background about the technology to know how it works. Um, but then we also have to kind of have that investigative mindset to uh, think about where the evidence could be and to think about how it relates to the rest of the facts of the case and how it relates to evidence in the real world. And then if we come upon um, a, a hit on a computer from a, like a keyword search, like this in the green box up here, uh, we found through a, a keyword search on remote detonator. This was an attempted murder case. We find that and we see all this text in, in the green box and we're not really sure what that is, right? Except um, we're keeping up with technology and uh, the, the, the research that is coming out and we're able to recognize uh, the, the, bits of, uh, the bits of information that are in there, like the thing in the red box, that series of numbers is actually a date that's been encoded. So then we were able to tell, oh, this is a Google Analytics cookie uh, that was on a cell phone that was backed up to a computer uh, that shows that even though the user cleared their internet history, uh, that they searched for homemade remote detonator, visited a website, and this happened the night before that they went and purchased the equipment uh, from uh, Walmart the next day. So it's finding out about uh, you know, these, these weird hits that you see on the computer uh, and then kind of making sense of that data uh, and, and being able to describe what it actually is and why it's meaningful. So being able to uh, learn and test things is important, making, uh, making your own solutions is important, and then of course at the end of the day, being able to explain it to a non-technical audience, a judge, a jury, your prosecutor or your investigating team is very important as well. Thank you very much. Up next. Thank you, Joe. Um, see where we're at here? Uh-oh. Might need a lifeline for this one. Maybe we need to yeah, open the, uh, there we go. There we go. There you go. <laughs> the other mark. So um, I just wanted to start by, by sharing a quote. And uh, I think this quote really captures what I plan to, to speak about today. Having worked in forensic science for, for 26 years, I believe the contributions that forensic scientists make to the criminal justice system are critically important. Uh, their work in 
uh, improves our safety and ultimately our quality of life. When I started with the Pennsylvania State Police in 1991, violent crime was peaking in the United States. DNA was just beginning to be implemented on a wide-scale basis in most state forensic laboratories, and the FBI would soon pilot a national DNA database. Also, a national ballistics database for gun-related evidence would follow later that decade. And advances in algorithms were improving the accuracy and search capabilities of our fingerprint databases. Did these advances in forensic science contribute to the decrease in violent crime? I'll leave that for the social scientists to, to debate. But there's no debate in the tremendous technological advances seen in forensic science over this time. The field is far from static, even for techniques that have been used for decades. So on the other side of the equation, the innovation um, on the criminal side, we can look just at drug evidence. When I started and I, I did some drug analysis testing, our drugs had names like heroin, cocaine, the occasional PCP or LSD. Today we have synthetic cannabinoids, synthetic opioids, and drugs with names like U47700. Um, on a, on a related note, I shared with, with Lindsay uh, a seizure that happened in the state of Nebraska, uh, a fentanyl seizure. And uh, with a lethal dose of two milligrams, this fentanyl seizure had the potential to kill 26 million people. One seizure. So just think about that. It also impacts how the, the forensic scientists deal with that type of evidence in the laboratory. On the innovation on our side, um, a DNA test of a, of a known reference sample could take a month when I um, started working in the laboratory. Today, um, with new rapid DNA technology, this could be done in about an hour at a police booking station, so without even a forensic scientist doing the work. So as we implement these new technologies, we must continue to strive for quality and excellence. So just a little bit of background. My office, ISATAP, is within the criminal division of the Department of Justice, and our sole focus is international law enforcement development. Essentially, our mission is to strengthen our partners around the world so they are better able to address transnational issues such as terrorism, organized crime, trafficking of all kinds, and human rights. Our work is in all areas of forensic science, so I won't focus on one uh, discipline today, such as digital evidence. Rather, I'll highlight our approach to ensuring that forensic evidence is reliable and should deserve the public's trust. So why is forensic science important to our mission? I believe the answer is most people to um, in this room and uh, watching online. We use and share forensic evidence to investigate and solve any number of transnational crimes. To meet these challenges, we help countries implement new technologies, such as techniques to analyze digital evidence or create a national DNA database. But I would also ask you to think about the indirect contributions that forensic science can make, which are important to the rule of law.
Does public confidence and convictions increase when forensic, science, when forensic evidence supports other testimonial evidence? Does public trust in the rule of law improve because of non-biased scientific evidence? Are sexual assault survivors more likely to report a crime and believe they have access to justice because there is a forensic DNA laboratory in their country? I believe the answer is yes to these questions. Ensuring the exchange of reliable forensic information between countries, including multi-jurisdictional use of evidence, is a key reason my, why my office provides assistance in forensic science. As a result, we believe in the importance of international accreditation under the applicable standards issued by the International Organization for Standardization, or ISO. ISO accreditation allows a laboratory to demonstrate that it is conforming to international standards and best practices. Accreditation is also important to, for the sustainability of our government's investments. Best practices are incorporated into laboratory SOPs, and the continuous improvement model provides a management framework that will build upon our efforts long after our assistance ends. The importance of accreditation in our work has been reinforced by our own domestic experience which is filled with many examples of amazing applications of science to criminal investigations, as well as some work that, quite frankly, misrepresented the science. Seeking to improve the practice of forensic science, Congress asked the Department of Justice to fund our National Academy of Sciences to do a review of forensic science in the United States. They produced their report in 2009. The report may have been more critical than some of the community expected, but it has been shaping our work ever since. The report had a number of recommendations, some only relevant to the Organization of Forensic Science in the United States, but others relevant to all forensic laboratories. Of particular interest, the report recommended that ISO accreditation should be mandatory for all forensic laboratories. A related recommendation focused on what quality assurance systems should identify, namely mistakes, fraud, and bias. While the report recommended mandatory accreditation, many people in the field recognized that accreditation wasn't the final solution, rather a minimum level that all laboratories should attain. We are not alone in recognizing the importance of international accreditation. The European Union has stated the importance in several council framework decisions. The EU acknowledges that forensic evidence may be used in multiple jurisdictions and international accreditation should allow evidence produced in one country to be seen as equally as reliable as being produced in another country where it might be introduced in a trial. In fact, in a 2016 decision, they reaffirmed this position and focused on particular on forensic evidence in databases or evidence that can be exchanged at an international level, such as information related to guns, drugs, and explosives. They went on to say, and I quote, beyond traditional forensics, recent events have highlighted the urgent need for a swift exchange of reliable digital forensic data that can be used as evidence in court beyond the jurisdiction of the member state of origin. Therefore, accreditation of forensics procedures should, be, should also be pursued as a matter of priority in this area. 
ensuring the exchange of reliable forensic information is a significant reason why my office provides this type of assistance. We have had success working with countries to obtain this achievement. So, so far, nine of our partner countries have obtained ISO accreditation in at least one area. Many of the countries are using the same accrediting body that we use primarily in the United States, ANAB. Mexico is our largest program, and we obviously have shared security interests. In Mexico, I am proud to say that eight states and the Federal Attorney General's Office have achieved ISO accreditation in at least one forensic discipline. The state of Puebla just became the first state in Mexico to obtain accreditation in our six focus areas of DNA, chemistry, ballistics, fingerprints, question documents, and crime scene investigation. With this success, I am often asked how we help facilitate these results. What is our model? First, we emphasize that we are peers in the international forensic community. We are not exporting American standards. Rather, these are the norms and the best practices of the international forensic community. Second, we try to simplify the process and our language, but not the rigor. For example, one of our advisors breaks down the accreditation process to 10 steps, which psychologically seems much easier to, to achieve than trying to meet the hundreds of individual ISO requirements. Lastly, we turn our partners into leaders. We have scientists visit partner labs that have already achieved accreditation to learn from their experience or to observe an internal audit. We also push our partners to assume leadership roles in the international community. Just last week, I was joined as a keynote speaker by the laboratory director of Costa Rica and the quality assurance manager from Baja, California, Mexico at the annual awards luncheon of the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors. Pushing our partners to be leaders and mentors simply reinforces the first point, that these are the expectations of the international forensic science community and not just the United States. Accreditation under the ISO standards provides a framework for a high-functioning quality system. However, accreditation is more than standard operating procedures, validation studies, and chain of custody records. For excellence, a laboratory needs leaders that value the culture of quality. In fact, several of ISO's foundational management principles are related to the values of the organization and its leaders. In particular, ISO says that leadership could create, should create a unity of purpose and direction for the organization. It also asks leaders to commit to continuous improvement as a permanent objective. In other words, ISO is asking for the organization to have a culture of quality. Why is an organizational culture of quality so important? It's important because in the end, this is still a human endeavor, and as such, nothing will always go perfectly. Like many forensic professions, forensic science requires strong leaders. When potential issues come to light, which they eventually will, the leader may have a choice between addressing them immediately or hoping they go away. But as we have seen, ignoring issues ultimately leads to larger problems at the end. And given the consequences of our daily work, the public deserves forensic laboratories that strive for excellence. Thank you.
All right. Uh, now the other Mark, Mark Grant's uh, Secret Service. Thank you very much for the invitation today. Um, I'm going to start out with a quick history lesson just to make sure uh, I, I fulfill my contractual obligations to, uh, to promote the agency. Uh, I do a lot of these presentations. Uh, inevitably, there's always a handful of folks that are unaware that the Secret Service conducts financial investigations, let alone uh, cyber investigations. Uh, so everybody probably recognizes this picture, uh, Courier and Ives lithograph from, from April 1865. Um, interestingly enough, at the time, there was no national banking system. Okay, so the $1 bill from the bank in Washington, D.C. was markedly different than the $1 bill from the bank in Philadelphia. And what happened, what, what became affecting the economy was counterfeit was running rampant. Again, if you don't know what a dollar bill looks like, it's difficult enough as it is today. Uh, but if you don't know what a dollar bill is going to look like, it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. Uh, numbers at the time indicate that counterfeit uh, bills in circulation were close to 30% of the, uh, the total currency in the United States. So obviously the president and uh, the leaders recognized that that was an issue. So on April 14th, President Lincoln signed an order for the creation of an investigative arm under Treasury um, to create a group to specifically combat counterfeiting and, and essentially secure the nation's uh, financial infrastructure. April 14th, uh, he also had a date uh, with, with Mrs. Lincoln to go to Ford's Theater, and, and we all know how that ended up. But uh, the ironic part is the day that we were created, essentially, the day that President Lincoln was killed had nothing to do with us being, uh, being involved in protection. Obviously, that's what we're most well known for. Uh, that really didn't happen for about 40 more years when we kind of slowly took over that. But uh, we have been doing financial crimes for 150 years. Uh, incidentally, we were actually doing digital crimes before the internet. Uh, before the internet, I believe it was ARPANET. Uh, and we've got a case going back to, uh, to, uh, to the early 80s where we were working with DOD resources and helping them out. So um, we've been doing it a long time. We're very good at it. So what I'm going to talk about now is uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of elaborate on a couple of the things that, that Joe and Mark talked about. Uh, the first one is accreditation. Again, Mark just talked extensively with that. Um, when I started the Secret Service in 2000, uh, 2001, I was fortunate enough to be trained as a forensic examiner. Uh, and when I came back from training, I think Ovi Carroll was one of my instructors, who's, uh, who's still in DOJ today. Um, I had an office. Uh, they were nice enough to take the carpet out of the office and put the anti-static tile in, uh, give me some extra power strips, a different lock on the door. But that was my lab. Uh, obviously, that doesn't necessarily meet today's accreditation standards. but. Backing up 20 years or so, kind of in the mid-70s is when this, this ASCLAD certification uh, kind of started to take hold. Um, and, and the goal at the time was to create a framework, again, as, as Mark discussed, to have a set of standards that can be applied across the board. Um, the issue that, that we have today that, that I see specifically in, in my world is when ASCLAD was designed, as we talked about, it was for blood, it was for DNA, it was for ballistics. Um, fingerprints haven't changed in a long time. DNA hasn't changed for hundreds of thousands of years. So what you're testing is a constant. The technology changes, um, as we talked about, you know, what, took, what used to take a month to do a DNA sample now takes hours. Um, but what you're testing is still the same. The issue with digital evidence, though, is if you took a time machine and brought my lab back from 2001, 
it would essentially be useless today. Um, everybody's cell phone in here, I would have zero ability to look at that cell phone. Um, far less the ability to look at the smartwatches that everybody's wearing, the Alexa device that, that everybody has in the room, uh, or even the vehicles that we drive. Vehicle forensics now is, is, is a growing, growing industry. Um, and, and even something simple as your laptop. Uh, the hardware connections, the, the right blockers that we've talked about, uh, all that stuff has changed over the years. Part of the accreditation issue is standardization. And, and again, when you're looking at DNA that, that hasn't changed in hundreds of thousands of years, you know what you're looking at. In the digital world, things change frequently. So it, it's, it's the, the issue that the service has, um, and again, we agree with 95% of it, the accreditation argument, um, but our tools are changing literally daily. Uh, again, I talked about my tools from 2001 not being applicable today. The tools that were assigned in 2017 oftentimes aren't applicable today. Uh, example, we're working a case right now looking at some Romanians that are creating gas pump skimmers. Gas pump skimmers are kind of the scourge of the, of the cyber crime world. They're, um, they're tangible, we see them, we see them in the news, and, and, it, and it's a giant pain. Uh, the guy that we're looking at is building them in his basement. He's buying parts on eBay, he's, he's grabbing some old cell phones that have, that have uh, you know, the batteries have kind of died on, and he's cobbling something together to make a device, and he's making 10 or 20 at a time, shipping them over here, and then they're being used. Um, every time we find new skimmers, it's a new skimmer. I can't go to the forensic store and, and, and buy that device that's gonna in, interrogate that, that piece of uh, hardware because this is the first time we've seen it. Uh, and, and our issue with ASCLAD certification, with, with accreditation is the tools that you're using, letter the law, and, and Mark and I were talking earlier, there, there's, there's some interpretation that, that these are open to, but um, letter of the law is these tools have to be tested. They have to be rigorously tested, they have to be verified. Sometimes it takes months, years, to verify that a tool is, uh, is, uh, is gonna provide the results that it should on a, on a consistent basis. Um, if we're getting a device, we're seeing it for the first time, I can't wait a year to, to do the forensics on that device. So it's, uh, it, it's something that we look at. Um, again, 95% of, of accreditation, we, we feel very strongly with. Um, we try to match as much as we can. Uh, our forensics laboratories across the, uh, the globe uh, have a, a very strong track record. Again, I you know, was, was, I guess you could say, fortunate enough to testify as an expert witness in, in federal court um, and, and had no issues with, uh, with my, my uh, display of the evidence. But it's something that there needs to be flexible. Again, we talked earlier about digital forensics being kind of a mixture of science and art. Um, not every piece of, uh, of, of regulation can be applied to it. You do need some of that flexibility. The other thing that I want to talk about today is uh, encryption and, and data privacy. Uh, obviously, this is something that, uh, that we could talk about all day long uh, and, and is kind of exhaustingly discussed in the news on a daily basis. But uh, just to touch on a few specific issues and, and, and how it applies to uh, investigations. As investigators, we're all always playing catch up. Um, rarely do we see something, a new emerging technology, a new emerging opportunity for criminals, think ahead and know what the criminals are gonna do and, and have a plan, have a practice in place before that crime occurs. Uh, we're always one step behind. Uh, 
that's the lot of an investigator. We, we've come to accept that. Um, but what we're concerned with now is encryption is getting two, three, four steps ahead of us. Um, increasingly, there's areas where we're completely dark. Uh, you know, the, the level of encryption, the level of technology is advancing quicker than we can keep up to. And we're getting to the point where there potentially could be large swaths of, of evidence of data that are completely out of reach for law, law enforcement, for the courts. Um, historically, there's always been privacy. Everybody in here can have a safe at home. Uh, everybody can have a lockbox at, at the bank. Um, but even your conversations with an attorney, with your wife, with clergy, all those are protected, all those are private, but they're still within reach of the rule of law. And we're, we're rapidly approaching a, a time where we just don't have that, that capability technologically anymore. Um, interestingly enough, last week I was at a, at a conference in, uh, in Las Vegas, and James Comey was the keynote speaker. Um, everybody remembers 2015, the San Bernardino shooting, uh, and the iPhone was kind of the center of that controversy from a privacy and encryption standpoint. Uh, initially, the FBI couldn't get into the iPhone. Uh, there was a very strong concern that there could have been additional uh, members of this, uh, this attack group. And so there was pressure put on Apple and, and eventually a court case that, uh, that compelled Apple to provide a backdoor to this device. Uh, at the time, Mr. Comey came out and he was very outspoken and, 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 and plainly stated that, yes, absolutely, the government should be able to compel private industry to create backdoors. Uh, the interesting thing, last week, Mr. Comey has kind of softened on that stance extensively. Um, and, and I agree with him that there has to be a balance. Uh, we, we can't completely let the government, and, and I represent the government, uh, you know, we can't completely let them into our lives and, and, and be able to monitor everything. Um, but again, there, there has to be a balance where, uh, in the right situations with the right set of approvals, the government can step in and can look at your most, uh, your most private uh, investigations, or not private investigations, private information. Um, as I mentioned before, though, Secret Service, law enforcement is always playing catch up. And in this instance, in, in 2015, we were able to catch up. Um, private company out of, out of Israel, Celebrate, was able to develop a tool uh, that could get us into that iPhone. Um, but at the same time, as soon as iPhone, as soon as Apple saw that, now they begin creating something that Celebrate's not going to be able to defeat. And again, we're in that constant cycle. Uh, and as long as we're in the ballpark, it, it's not a major concern. But I think we have to look closely at, at the potential uh, of a time where we do fall significantly behind. And if we do, the question is going to be, does public opinion change? Uh, right now, the obligation is on us. The obligation is on law enforcement, on, on the government, to, to find that solution. My, the, the question that I have is, if crime increases rampantly, if there's unfortunately significant terrorist events where we can kind of definitively say that encryption aided that crime syndicate, encryption aided that terrorist activity, um, if that happens enough, potentially that court of public opinion shifts and now there is an agreement that, yeah, maybe we do need to, uh, to force Apple, to force Microsoft, to force Google to create a backdoor. Again, right now, that onus is on us. 
Apple will argue that if they create that back door, that's essentially just creating a vulnerability, which creates more weakness, which then makes the entire system weak. Um, I would argue that if Apple creates that back door, if, if we look at a device, a digital device, just as if uh, it's, a, it's a structure, if you put a good lock on that door, if you reinforce that door, you put an alarm system on that door, again, this is all my background from, from working on alarm systems at the White House, you can make that door every bit as, as, as secure as that solid block wall. The issue there is, again, the, the, the public sentiment, and from a business standpoint, if Apple were to secure that back door, that's a significant investment. And it's probably one that they're not going to make a profit on. So um, again, that's a, that's a discussion that um, hopefully it never comes. But potentially in the future, you look at, at, at those issues. And again, public support could sway that. Uh, the other thing that I would argue is you know, right now, everybody ha kind of has that concern about the government peeking over your shoulder reading your emails. The reality is most everyone probably in this room has already kind of opened the door for Google, Microsoft, uh, Apple. Uh, again, just a few weeks ago, uh, we saw the story with, with Cambridge Analytica. Um, it, it's, it's a little frustrating from, from my point of view. Uh, again, that you see the comments, you see the talk in the news about, about uh, law enforcement and government being, uh, being big brother, uh, but at the same time, everybody is allowing Google, allowing Facebook to see everything that they post, everywhere they're at, everything they talk about, all of their friends. Uh, and, and we've seen, again, within the last couple of weeks that you know, potentially that information can be used um, to manipulate us, to manipulate uh, public opinion. So uh, to me, that should be as big of a concern, uh, if not more than government. Uh, and finally, uh, when you look at the way the feelings are with, with, with encryption and with privacy, you, you somewhat can be concerned that it can go too, too far one direction or another. Um, everybody's familiar with GDPR uh, coming out of Europe right now. I'm sure everybody's email boxes are full of uh, privacy updates. Uh, mine too. A, a lot of accounts that I didn't even know that I had uh, or had completely forgotten about. Uh, obviously, that's a massive piece of legislation. We were, Lindsay and I were talking earlier, apparently it's a boon for the, uh, for the legal community because a whole, a whole group of lawyers have kind of sprouted up to, uh, to manipulate, or not manipulate, to understand GDPR. <laughs> One of the things specifically that, that law enforcement is, is very interested in is GDPR's effect on ICANN. ICANN, uh, I don't remember the exact uh, acronym, it's the organization that, that handles internet naming conventions, the IP addresses, the domain names. Um, historically speaking, if you created a domain name, um, you know, for the U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, you had to register that domain with ICANN. You had to provide them a name, an address, a phone number, email address, all the contact information. And then ICANN would publish that in the WHOIS directory. Um, and that is an amazing tool for law enforcement. Uh, I've used it thousands of times. The current interpretation, though, of GDPR and, and, and primarily our folks in Europe is that publishing that who is data is then a violation of that person who's registered that domain. Uh, and so there's a very uh, a good chance that who is may go dark. So now if I'm doing a phishing investigation and I've got a domain that someone registered and, and I'm looking to see 
you know, where is that domain registered? Who registered it? Where can I send subpoenas to? It, it's again going to be a black hole. Um, and it's even gone a step further. There's actually a lawsuit uh, that was, that was uh, enacted on Friday last week. One of the online registers in Germany has the interpretation that not only are they prohibited from sharing that domain registration information, the contact information, they're not even going to collect it. So if you open up a domain through this German uh, you know, web service, they're not even going to ask you your name, your address. Uh, and again, from an investigative standpoint, uh, this is something that, that you know, really needs to be addressed. Unfortunately, do we have any ICANN lawyers in here? I know they're based up the road a little ways. Um, ICANN, and, and, and honestly, law enforcement was probably late to the, uh, to the table at, at trying to lobby for changes in this. So uh, just another indication of, of how rapidly things change in law enforcement, and, and especially in the digital world. So uh, I look forward to uh, our discussion. And with that, I will turn it over. Thank you so much. So we still have about 40 minutes for discussion and questions. Um, there's two microphones on either side, and I highly encourage asking questions so we can get a discussion going. Um, but if you do have a question, just raise your hand. Um, and there's two people helping who can bring you the microphones. Um, but I'll just start with a question that's perhaps more aimed at the two of you, you both brought up the issue of encryption and that it makes your jobs much more difficult in the investigation and prosecution of crimes and also the new, the new data protection laws that are getting stricter, particularly in Europe. Um, but have you seen, so this encryption is being put in place as a protection for privacy of those individuals and to increase security of companies that hold your data. In the prevention of crime, in cybercrime, identity theft, all of those issues, are these increased encryption technologies helping? Are you seeing a decrease in the amount of crime themselves, even if it makes you harder to, harder to go after the criminals? Um, are there fewer criminals to go after because of it? You want me to start? Sure. All right, I'll jump on this one. Um, absolutely not fewer criminals. Um, that's, uh, that's a growth industry. Uh, my, my area of focus for, for probably the past, the bulk of the past 10 years or so has been Eastern European cybercrime. Um, not so much uh, election interference, so no questions on that. But uh, the Eastern Europeans, specifically obviously the Russian speakers, um, have been very focused on our on our financial infrastructure, credit card industry, banking industry. Um, I see them using, effectively using encryption more than industry uses it. Um, it's all the, it, there's probably a good argument for that, for that, that single Russian hacker that's in his basement in a Caterinburg. He's got you know, one or two computers. It's relatively easy to keep that secure. Uh, uh, and he's, to some degree, behind the giant firewall that is Russia itself. Um, whereas an industry group, a, a large corporation in, in the United States or in, in any, uh, you know, any Western civilization, has a massive infrastructure. Um, and that massive infrastructure has a lot of doors, a lot of windows, a lot of openings um, that, that takes significant effort to ensure that all of that is secured. Uh, one of the things that I see a lot, unfortunately, is organizations don't know everything that they have. Um, there's a lot of, especially in the smaller groups, 
Um, they're looking for that silver bullet. Um, so something as simple as, as strong passwords, which, which is kind of a building block to encryption, if you have a fantastic encrypted system and, and you maintain the default password that was on there when that system was installed, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, we see that kind of time and time again. So uh, I would say that, uh, that our adversaries are probably more effective at the use of encryption than, okay. than our well, customers. Just to follow up on that, um, because you said one of the issues is the companies don't even know all the data that they have. They're collecting so much, they don't know what's in their possession. One of the things in my understanding of the GDPR is companies will have a much better idea of what's in their possession because they need an affirmative legal justification for everything they collect. So they'll be collecting less, and they'll know what's there. Um, so for just looking at these breaches like Equifax or Sony, these huge breaches, uh, had they been compliant with the GDPR, would those have been less harmful? Or is there anything um, of value that you see in that? You want that one, Joe? Um, I'll uh, try to offer a suggestion. Sure. Um, so uh, knowing what you have is certainly step one, but then protecting it sufficiently is um, another another clear step beyond that. And so um, it, it would be uh, making sure that, that they have uh, enough uh, safeguards implemented to actually protect the data that they now know that they have. Um, and that's um, in terms of uh, the, the perimeter, but also uh, detection and, and uh, quickly responding and uh, being aware of what's happening on your network as time goes by. Um, companies often see that compromises occur, uh, have occurred a long time ago once they, once they see that an intrusion has taken place, that, that um, uh, someone hacking in has been around for a while, um, having seen the data on the network, and so early detection um, on those sensitive areas is certainly important. If I could add one, one kind of thought to that. GDPR, I think the, uh, maybe one of the advantages, again, I'm not completely sold on it, but one of the advantages, as everyone's aware, is there are significant fines that potentially could be levied against your organization if you uh, aren't securing your data um, securely. I think the, the problem in the United States that we see oftentimes, and I kind of touched on it earlier, is if it doesn't lead to profit, it's not a priority for these companies. Um, and you look at a lot of the large data breaches that, that occurred, it's front page news for a couple days, uh, the stock generally dips for a couple days, sales dips for, for a week, two weeks, um, but unfortunately, in two or three weeks, there's another data breach. And now the heat's kind of off of that company. And, and now the shoppers come back and the stock price comes, comes back up. And so it, it's a simple return on investment. Uh, do we spend tons and tons of money on network security? My apologies. Thought I turned that off. Um, do we spend tons and tons of money on network security that essentially is just money going out the door and doesn't lead to profit when if we do get breached, the worst that happens is we, we take our beatings for a couple weeks in the media, and then everything goes back to normal. 
Um, and, and I think a lot of companies, you know, when they're sitting around at board meetings, uh, I, I know from, from friends that are in the financial industry, credit card industry, they look at the beginning of the year at their budget and they go, we're going to lose $100 million in fraud. And, and that's just the cost of doing business. Um, I think, like I said, GDPR may be a bit of a game changer because now, uh, especially the folks that are doing business with European customers, are, are under the gun that, yeah, there, there could be suffic uh, su sufficient ramifications uh, that's going to hurt the bottom line if, uh, if they don't comply with, uh, with the rules. Great. Thank you. Um, and on that kind of theme of thinking about privacy and data protection, you mentioned rapid DNA and some of these um, newer technologies. When we spoke, there was also something sequencing, uh, a new... Um, next generation Next sequencing. generation sequencing. Those were the two kind of um, new areas that you highlighted of importance. Um, obviously, it's kind of a cliche at this point to say the law lags behind the technology. Lawmakers have been very slow to legislate things in cyberspace and new technologies. So um, when you're coming up with these new technologies of rapid DNA and the next generation sequencing, if you could describe those a little more of how you foresee them being used and are there considerations of the ethical implications um, where maybe the law hasn't caught up to the technology? Sure. Um, first, I'll say that I've been pretty much a, a scientist at a desk for the last 12 years, so uh, my, my work in the laboratory is uh, uh, a bit, uh, bit stale. But the, the trends, the first thing to appreciate when people hear the word DNA, um, they think of you know, something that's very personal. The first thing to keep in mind is that the traditional DNA that is conducted in the forensic laboratory we are looking at areas of the DNA that don't code for anything. That's why there's a lot of variation, and that's why we can individualize someone. So we are not looking at things that we all have in common. So if we're just looking at you know, eye color, do they have the DNA for, for brown hair? That, that doesn't help us individualize a person per se. Um, however, but there's there's always ways to push the envelope. So um, the, the, the ethical debates come up from time to time. A few years ago, it was familial searching. So let's just say you have a sexual assault case. The, the, the person that, that committed that crime is unknown. We have a DNA sample. We put it through the National DNA Database. We don't get a hit. However, they match in every, every allele that we are looking at except one. And you know, that would indicate that the person that committed the crime is probably a relative, maybe a relative of the, the person that is in the database. So you know, what, what should an investigator or a laboratory be able to, to, to do with that information? So people think of it as being very personal when you're talking about DNA. But then on the other side, you know, prosecutors will say, this is, no, this is really not that much different than getting a partial license plate. And so you know, is, it, is it unethical if you have you know, uh, five digits of a, of a license plate to look at all the similar cars with that 
you know, license plate and to be able to, to hone in on the person that committed the, the hit and run, if you will. So there is our, a, a number of things. But there's also, um, because we, we touched on this as, as far as some of the things on the uh, genealogy and, and that aspect. You know, the, this type of technology with the next generation sequencing will have uh, more access uh, to, to do this type of testing on a regular basis in the forensic DNA laboratory where we haven't really focused on it um, because it wasn't aiding us in the identification of an individual. With the new technology, you'll essentially be able to do both. Um, but, you know, this has been used in probably less controversial areas, the, the remains uh, that are, are found in a grave. Um, People have done uh, facial reconstruction to be able to identify the person, but they have been reluctant to add any um, features and interpret that. Having some of the um, ancestry uh, markers has helped them provide a little bit more information and really identify the person that, that has been in that, that grave. So there's a, there's a number of different um, angles that um, you know it, it could potentially go down but uh, th at least in the, the the forensic scientists we are always just really constrained and working by <laughs> what our our legal teams and the investigators uh, allow us to do okay thank you does anyone have any questions so so the DNA uh, conversation uh, makes me think of some of the the other applications as well, with the interplay of basically uh, private law. Um, you know, we're talking about regulations, we're talking about the EU, et cetera, um, but we're also talking about, uh, especially with mobile telephony, we're talking about a lot of apps that have uh, a very long pseudo contract between us and the company that we all click on without being able to negotiate. Um, that is seen as Binding law. That's something that was certainly in the um, DNA match uh, for the Golden State Killer uh, recently was pointed to by the company saying, well, there's one word in there saying other uses, and so therefore you had agreed to this, um, so there's not any privacy issues, as opposed to there wasn't something specifically saying this will be available for this type of law enforcement use, uh, et cetera. And so I'm wondering, you know, whether it's, you know, everything from you know, what we saw with uh, law enforcement agencies basically having to sign away their right uh, or their ability to even tell the prosecutors uh, where they were getting evidence uh, when they were using Stingray a few years ago to user agreements, uh, whether it's in apps uh, or in uh, telephony. Uh, this, how that plays into what we assume is the rule of law, because these are seen as binding legal contracts, but they're not necessarily coming into what we're used to thinking about, which is there's cops, prosecutors, judges, and open courts where we can see rule of law happening. Instead, there's this other layer of law that maybe isn't as transparent as our assumptions when we're talking about rule of law in general. I'll, uh, one of my thoughts 
specifically with that and, and a lot of um, the other topics that we talked about today is, unfortunately, I, my, my vision of, of especially American society is we have a very short attention span, okay? A, a month ago, Cambridge Analytica was the, the hot topic and, and companies left and right were, were ditching Facebook and, and uh, you know, people were, were canceling their Facebook accounts because of the, you know, some of the, the exact same things you talked about. Um, when you sign up for the Facebook account, it's an under, understanding that you're, you're agreeing to their, uh, to their terms and conditions. You've got to click the box. You've got to accept. Obviously, nobody reads that 20-page document and, and looks for that other uses clause that's in there. Um, but again, in, unless there is a, a consistent messaging, consistent stories, I don't think there's going to be enough um, of an uprising um, among the public that's going to make a whole lot of changes. Again, if we string a handful of those stories together, uh, Cambridge Analytica, the you know the Golden State Killer is kind of a, a mixed bag because I'm, I'm sure most people in here that have done the, the DNA testing never imagined that it could be used for that. Uh, so the, on one hand, they like it that we caught a serial killer, but on the other hand, do I really want my DNA, you know, in, in a database that, that law enforcement's going to uh, going to be able to look at? Uh, but again, my, my opinion is, unless we see consistent issues, consistent coverage, I don't expect much of a change. Okay. Uh, yes. Hi, I'm, I'm Jim McMillan with the National Center for State Courts. Uh, one very short comment and then a question which I hope will uh, lead to some interesting conversation. One uh, thing you have to understand about civil law countries, because this is where GDPR is coming in from EU, is that they are constrained by the whole uh, concept of civil law, which is you can't do it unless we tell you you can. So this is why you were seeing the who is uh, reactions and things uh, happening from the European countries, because they're waiting for guidance. They're waiting for the rules to be passed by the EU to give them guidance to tell them it's okay you can do it. So I think that this will all sort itself out here uh, in short order. Uh, but I'm sure that uh, our friends at Europol and Interpol will be giving them some um, encouragement in those areas. Um, my other question, my actual question for you is that I'm really fascinated by the whole idea of what's the digital evidence package that's now uh, being, being done to put together by the prosecutor for the courts to prosecute the um, uh, people, but also where do you think that this digital evidence package is going? You know, how are, how are we going to be working with it and that sort of thing? So um, I'm looking maybe toward our friend from the Department of Justice, but I'm sure that there may be some uh, thoughts from all the panelists, so thank you. Uh, so um, the, the, with so much uh, data available on computers these days, um, there's only a, a piece of it that is relevant to making the case, um, and you will quickly overwhelm um, a jury and a judge and all of that if you, uh, if you uh, offer too much. Uh, and so if we can minimize it down to what actually makes the point, um, then I think that would give the, the best chance of removing distractions from, from other stuff that just gets in the way. I, I would 
one of the things that I've observed with, with my squad, um, you know, I've got a handful of forensic examiners. Uh, I had one individual, absolutely brilliant. Um, but he had a little bit of a disconnect in conveying that information. Uh, I've sat in on grand juries uh, on numerous occasions, and it's particularly difficult when you're talking these cyber cases because you kind of have a mixed audience. Um, hopefully they're awake, not always the case. Um, but you're, you're trying to explain IP addresses and that attribution. Um, unfortunately, I even had the issue with some, some of my US attorneys where you're trying to tell them that, yes, this guy, this Ivan is the guy sitting behind a keyboard in, in Russia. And, and to draw that line from you know, this credit card that was used at Walmart to, to you know, buy a stolen TV all the way back to Ivan over in Russia uh, is difficult. So uh, that, that final report, to me, one of the, one of the things that I emphasize with my, with my young forensic examiners is, is not only do you have to be accurate, but you have to be astute at, at presenting that information to whatever your audience is. If you're talking to the, uh, you know, the CISO the, the at the company, maybe he's very, uh, you know, very tech savvy and he, and he understands. But again, if you're sitting down in front of a, a judge or you're sitting down in front of a grand jury or jury, uh, you need to be able to present that in a way that, that they can comprehend. And then reports are useful for the detail, but then anything that we can do to help visualize what's going on, if there are a sequence of events that we can put into a timeline that people can understand um, that by looking at it, at, rather than reading a bunch of dates and times throughout a report, that might give them a better overview sense of what's going on. So I've had a, a trial within the past year where there were a bunch of network logs and remote logins, and you're seeing uh, the, these, these router logs with these confusing commands. But what it essentially is when we boil down to it is someone remotely logged into this router from, from some location, and then they switched to a different user account, and they logged into a different router. So if we can create a little map that shows the entry point and then the, the access of another system on the network, then that's a lot easier to visualize uh, than just looking at a bunch of text-based logs with weird commands and terminology in them. Hi, uh, my name is Shabnam. I'm with the Syria Justice and Accountability Center. Um, we do human rights monitoring in relation to the Syrian conflict. Uh, so with, the, um, with social media, there's so much information um, and potential crimes that are being posted online um, that's maybe hard to do user attribution for. Um, but there's also so many um, NGOs and civil society groups that have cro cropped up that are focused on doing investigations. And this is kind of broadening the scope of who's an investigator. Um, and also with just normal people, individuals, like you saw in Charlottesville, um, it was crowdsourced information that led to, um, led to uh, arrests of, of some of the perpetrators. Um, what's the role of law enforcement in working with civil society groups or working with the public now that, the, um, now that it's kind of diversified who has access to information and who can look for information online that can lead to arrests? I'll, I'll kind of jump in. You know, with, with social media, one of the things uh, that, that we've seen an explosion, obviously, you know, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff, um, it affects us directly with our protective mission. Okay. Back 
you know, 20 years ago and, and, and beyond that, if you wanted to threaten the president, you had to sit down and write a letter and, and send it to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, the Secret Service, little bragging, uh, bragging right here, has the largest ink library in the world because that's how we did forensics back in the day. When we got a letter that was threatening the president, we did, you know, we took it to our forensic lab. They did the analysis on the ink and were able to kind of narrow it down to a geography or, or a specific company that distributed that ink. Um, that was all fine and dandy. Then the explosion of the internet happens, and, and now it's as simple as a, as a drunken tweet. And, and, and now there is just an overwhelming amount. Um, and, and just like you know, every other agency, you, you've kind of got to cut through the chaff and find what's what's real and what's just people venting. Um, and, and the difficult prospect is if you don't jump and make the right conclusions, and then somebody that we thought was maybe just kind of running their mouth and, and, and pushing the border of, of free speech, and now two weeks later, a month later, they do something, then it's, you know, why wasn't that person under surveillance? Uh, why wasn't that person arrested? Why wasn't that person, uh, you know, had a, had a more thorough job? Um, not so much social media. We had an individual that showed up at the White House, and he had a hatchet in his, in his belt. Um, clearly a mental health uh, consumer, but he didn't make any threats. He didn't cause any problems, he didn't threaten the president, didn't threaten himself, wasn't, uh, wasn't a danger. So we're kind of hamstrung right there. We can't do much with him <clears throat> other than tell him that the president's not going to see him today and you need to, to move along. Um, a month later, he jumps the fence. And, and then days later, our, our director's up on Capitol Hill asking us, if you knew about this guy a month ago, why, weren't, you know, why wasn't he under surveillance? Um, if anybody's been to Lafayette Park, uh, the vast majority of the folks in Lafayette Park, again, unfortunately, are, are, are mental health consumers. Um, and, and we just don't have the resources to, uh, to, to follow every single one of them. So it, it's very similar that, um, you know, and again, maybe AI, obviously AI is kind of the cutting edge, one of the big topics. Um, and, and, it, and it applies to, to presidential threats. Hopefully it can apply to, to school shootings. I know we see that a lot, um, where it seems like inevitably when somebody shoots a school up, we look at their Facebook accounts and there, there's some indicators. Um, so I, I wish I had a better answer for you. I wish we did a better job at it. Um, but, but again, that's something that, that, that is on the horizon. And again, maybe, you know, maybe AI is a solution because uh, obviously Facebook's not doing a fantastic job um, or, or putting enough assets towards it um, as we've seen in the past. So. And one thing just to respond to that, actually, the Human Rights Center at UC Berkeley is spearheading an effort to develop an international protocol on open source investigations to begin to kind of set minimum standards in that field where civil society is working as well as professional law enforcement and how to effectively use that digital online open source information in investigations, it's, which is actually focused very much on war crimes, crimes against humanity, and what's happening in Syria. Um, one of the things, though, we're trying to balance between setting standards and the speed at which the field is kind of developing and new tools are coming out. You know, right now we use YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter as the examples, but in a few years, those names might be obsolete, you know, if we put if we use tools, so we're trying to focus on specific principles. Um, but that kind of brings me back to this issue of setting standards and um, the quality control aspect and how you balance that 
with the fact that you have new tools coming out every day and not necessarily the luxury and time of testing them to the degree that you want before um, a case goes to court. So how do you find that balance? Sure, I'll, I'll start with that. So, you know, I think digital evidence is the extreme, but, you know, we, we focus on the, uh, the, the, the ISO standards, and generally these are developed for essentially international trade, so that a company that is buying a product or a part from a company in another country that they can ensure the, 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 the reliability of you know, what they are buying since everything is, uh, you know, depends on each other when you're building a car or an airplane. But um, what we always say in forensic science, you know, it's, it's one thing in an industrial setting, just give the example of uh, inks, you're making pen, that that pen manufacturer can control all their inputs. In a forensic laboratory, we don't control any of our inputs. So whether it's digital evidence or whether it's DNA from a crime scene that's um, on a dirty rag and, and perhaps it's a mixture of five different individuals. So having that, uh, that appreciation for uh, the, the flexibility and, and, and again, this is where even in, in the traditional forensics, you know, it's, it's, I don't necessarily say art, but I say that the person has to be creative in their use and application of, of science. So, um, all these you know, things that come up, using the, the, the uh, um, ancestry uh, uh, websites to be able to solve a, a, a cold case, you know, a serial killer. I mean, that, that, that takes some creativity, whether it's on the forensic sciences part or on the investigators part. Um, uh, but uh, having that standards, I think it really comes, and, and it comes to light, and what we've seen with the, the problems with forensic science in the United States is when you come to the trial. Um, there's getting the investigative leads, and we're always concerned that in the forensic laboratories, our customers are, are the courts and the investigators, and we want to be timely um, with our results. But when it comes to court, we have to be, be very precise in our language, um, both so that we convey very complex topics and scientific topics in a way that a jury can understand, but then also that we are not misleading them in, in what we have to say and the significance of our findings. And that's, that's where we've had some of the, the, the challenges. And that's is part of the accreditation process. We, we labs do uh, uh, monitoring of testimony to make sure that the, the scientists are, are, are not misrepresenting um, that their conclusions. Um, but then there's, we're also, um, the Department of Justice is um, ensuring some uh, uniform reporting and testimony uh, guidance that they're pushing out. Now, from a federal level, the, you know, the, the state and local forensic laboratories aren't necessarily uh, bound by that, but it's uh, a pretty good uh, guidance. I think I saw a question up there. Lynn Haber, just a 
this on. Uh, just a, a follow-up to the comment you just made. How do you do uniform standards for presenting evidence for another country? I mean, in most cases, it'll be, it will be, a it'll be a bench trial. There are very few countries that have juries. But uh, it doesn't, how does, what, how does ECITAP work with that? Oh, wow. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, many, many labs don't have true admissibility standards for, for expert testimony. Um, but we, we provide training in that, and you know, what do we try to reinforce you know, essentially what we, what we said. I mean, there are uh, many different uh, professional organizations have uh, code of ethics, and you know, we, just going back to, to my experience when I've testified in court and what I share with um, other younger forensic scientists, is that it is not our job to make the prosecution's case, and we have to accept that the defense um, can make points, uh, but we have to really just focus on re remaining objective um, in the work we do and, and actually uh, to be true scientists. You know, one of, one of the things that the, the National Academy of Sciences um, the report that I mentioned, one of their recommendations was that forensic laboratories should be independent of law enforcement and prosecution. That is probably easier um, said than done. If you're starting a forensic laboratory um, in a country where you haven't had one, that's probably uh, wise advice. But um, you know, in, in our situation and with the you know, the, the history that we have, um, it's, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. However, the, those independent um, standards and the accreditation process, um, I think, forces you to, to be much more conscious that, uh, that um, you are really an, an independent scientist and not not um, um, only working for the prosecution. We are we're trying to help uh, find the truth like uh, um, others in the, in the court system. Well, um, I might move this to Joe in talking about the independence and uh, not specifically working necessarily for the prosecutor's theory of the case. When you have this huge volume of data, so many devices, so many places to look, and so much content being collected that you can't possibly look at it all. How do you make sure that your investigation is independent and that you're catching kind of potentially exonerating information as well as what's incriminating? Um, and then how do you convey that to the judges? Sure, so certainly as we're conducting our search with our tools, it lets us um, search across or view lots of data pretty concisely. So if we are looking for programs installed on a computer to see if one was used recently, um, then uh, it would be easy enough to see the other programs as well. And if there's one that um, that proved innocence, then you know that's something that we could definitely make note of. Or if there's uh, a search term uh, that we run against 
um, all, the, all the data on the hard drive. We would get results back really quickly, and if there was data in there that was exculpatory in some way, we could certainly um, include that in our uh, analysis, in our report. Um, the other thing um, that we deal with is um, defense experts. And so they will look at the same data and they will be able to provide their own analysis uh, and find, um, find points that um, help their case. And so we are able to um, review those and respond to those and even um, participate in trials if needed to, um, to, to respond to uh, the defense's claims as well. Okay. I think we have time for another question. Does anyone else? Questions? Um, okay. Well, I guess, uh, are there any other points you want to make just as a final statement on what people should be focused on or looking out for? I know uh, artificial intelligence was mentioned as a few times as um, kind of one of the newest hot topics. Um, but any final remarks? Well, <clears throat> I would just ask, I know in, in our experience in testifying in court, what we have to deal with is the, what's called the CSI effect. It's basically that the jurors have sometimes an unrealistic expectation of what can be done in the laboratory and really what needs to be done. You know, sometimes they want and, and demand that an unreasonable amount of, you know, of work can be done to prove something that everyone has already agreed to, uh, you know, has happened. So that is, that is a, a challenge for us when we when we testify. I'm not sure if that's come to to play in the in the digital evidence realm yet or not. Um, it probably has. Enhance this picture. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, my bosses certainly have the, the CSI effect. <laughs> when we're giving evidence, it's you know, well, why can't you find what you're looking for? Um, no, I think from a broader picture, and, and I touched on it earlier. Um, about the, uh, the the constant changing focus. I mean, that would be my my push. We we're talking earlier. I get invited probably once a month or so to come to presentations like this. Uh, I enjoy coming out. Um, I, I enjoy talking to folks about current trends in cybercrime. Is kind of the generic um, title that I that I often use. Um, and, and I hope that it continues to grow, to gain legs, to uh, you know, to be a point of focus, so that. Uh, people in positions of power far above me make significant changes um, to, uh, to to allow for better freedom, for better better transparency for folks. Um, again, a lot of that's driven by policymakers in this room, policymakers up on Capitol Hill. Um, but I, uh, you know, I certainly certainly don't mind coming out and talking about it. And I, and I am frustrated, unfortunately, more times than not, um, that we aren't doing more, we aren't doing better. Um, but hopefully the, the continued discussion leads for, uh, leads for an improvement over time. I think the uh, importance of um, providing education to all of those involved um, is, is something that we need to continue to work on. Um, our, our lab uh, educates prosecutors um, and uh, other attorneys and judges 
uh, on uh, digital evidence and so they're aware of what's capable and what's possible, uh, what is stored on a computer, what's stored in the cloud, so that they have some idea uh, when they get um, a case that they're working on or, or hearing uh, that they know kind of what's reasonable and what's possible and what to expect. So uh, that kind of thing is really important. Great. Well, thank you so much. Let's give a round of applause to the panelists. Let me also uh, thank Lindsay for doing a superb job in moderating. Uh, this concludes the first panel of, of our discussion today. Um, next, we'll move to a networking break um, and also engagement with a variety of different um, actors in this field, and you'll actually have the opportunity. In order to effectuate that, um, we need everybody to actually go up the stairs in order to go to the, to the main concourse where the platform has been set up. And of course, to aid in your, uh, in your adventure, there's coffee and refreshments. Um, the other thing I want to mention, because we are obliged, like everybody else, to both monitor and account, as well as being low-tech, is that in your folders, you will see a, uh, an evaluation form that's in bright yellow. Um, and we ask that those participants, uh, individuals here, please take a moment uh, throughout the course of the day, especially if, if you're leaving, uh, to take a moment to fill out the evaluations because they are substantively very helpful. They gauge our interest. And then finally, uh, remember that in addition to coffee and engagement with the, the host of actors, again, the list is in uh, the materials provided to you. We will proceed immediately to the keynote lunch uh, where lunch will be served, and then we'll have the opportunity to uh, engage in another, another heady discussion. So please, um, please continue, and we look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usrp.org backslash podcasts. Thank you for listening to this event.